Uh, it's a joy and a blessing, privilege to be in front of you guys here today. I usually sit in the very back because my beautiful wife Stephanie and I have two kids, so we sit in the, the loud section. Um, so I've only ever seen most of you from behind. You're very nice looking from the front as well. Um, it's, it's, uh, I'm very happy to be here. I did, when, when Trevor asked me if I wanted to speak, um, I immediately decided yes, but I, I knew that it would come with a, a little bit of nerves uh, because I've only ever so far in my life spoken before middle school students and high school students. So um, we're going to have to see you this morning <clears throat> if my teaching style lands with a group whose maturity level goes beyond fart jokes <laughs> and, and knowing the latest <clears throat> hashtags. So, so if I look down at my notes a lot, it's, um, you'll have to forgive me. I'm, I'm certainly a better writer than, than I am a speaker. Pause for laughter. Good, right on, right on point here. Uh, Trevor and I discussed a few options for, for what I tackled this morning. I'm a lay person, I, <clears throat> excuse me. I didn't go to seminary, um, uh, and like I said, you know, I've done youth group talks and things like that, uh, but to do sort of an exposition of scripture was at least today sort of beyond what I, what I felt comfortable with. But there is uh, a shared interest that Trevor and I have, and that's the field of apologetics. And so for those who aren't familiar with it, apologetics um, does not mean telling people you're sorry for being a Christian. Um, apologetics comes from a Greek word, apologia, which comes from a, a particular verse of scripture, which I'll read to you here. And the Greek word means a formal defense of one's position. And so we have uh, 1 Peter 3.15, and the first part of uh, verse 16, it says, but set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks about the hope you possess. Yet do it with courtesy and respect, keeping a good conscience. That first part of the section there, um, always be ready to give an answer, that's gonna be what we focus on here. But I did wanna just tag on the first part of verse 16 because even if you're ready to give an answer, um, if you don't do it with courtesy and respect, keeping a good conscience, Scripture says you're a clanging gong, right? So, so it's to give an answer. That's the, that's the Greek word apologia. Um, it doesn't mean a defense, like defending one's territory. It means a defense, uh, like a reasoned position, being able to um, eloquently uh, defend what it is that you believe, a conviction that you hold. It means to give an answer. So when considering how to cover this topic this morning, I, I thought about doing this one thing that I've heard some speakers do, Sean McDowell, um, Josh McDowell's son, he's done this a lot, and I actually did this myself once. Um, what you do is, with the permission of the people that invite you, you go and speak at a Christian event or before a Christian audience, and you tell them that you're an atheist. And you present them with the atheist worldview, and you sort of say, like, let's have a Q&A here. Let's see what challenges you can bring to me and what challenges I can bring to you. Um, and, and I did this once in front of a group of college students, and their reaction was <laughs> deer in headlights. Um, and I don't think it's because they were young in the faith. I genuinely think that there's sort of a lack of training across the board for this particular enterprise um, of being ready to, to defend your faith. So it doesn't mean to be unbelieving if you're not ready but it could mean to be, in a certain way, unloving. I'll tell you why I say that. In Luke 10, we have uh, the interaction between Jesus and one of the religious leaders. 
And it says, now an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus, saying, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you understand it? And the expert answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. And then it goes into the Good Samaritan parable. So we're called to love God with our heart, with our soul, with our strength, and with our mind. I think we're pretty good at loving God with our hearts. Um, We all can feel warmly towards him and and be appreciative in our hearts about his character and his nature. I think we're pretty good about loving him with our our soul. I think there's an aspect of kind of maintaining a purity in, in in the deep places of yourself and letting that purity kind of um, live out in your words and your thoughts and your actions. I think we're good at loving God with our strength. Um, I think that means uh, being the hands and feet of Jesus, serving people around you, um, giving of your time and your resources. But what about loving God with our minds? I think it's often overlooked. Um, I don't think we necessarily have a great definition of what that absolutely is, but I do think that apologetics uh, is you know one very effective way to love God with our minds and to stay away from um, what the secular audience would put out as being blind faith, right? Twain, Mark Twain famously wrote in Huckleberry Finn, faith is believing in something you just know ain't true. And I think that that might be what people think of faith uh, as being, a blind leap. Um, maybe even a, among the Christian audience it might be uh, de- uh, defined that way. But faith is actually born out of something that I tend to reference more often, which is the word conviction. Conviction comes from having good evidence, good reasons for believing that a thing is true, and then walking in faith based on that conviction. So just consider uh, the names of some of these apologetics ministries that exist out there. Clear thinking Christianity, reasons to believe, always be ready, stand to reason, Ratio Christi, which is um, Latin for reason for Christ, or reason of Christ. We can love God with our minds. Um, It's not as as difficult as it might seem. And I would say that if anybody challenges uh, that God wouldn't want to, you know, soil our faith or ruin our faith by demanding that we have proof or evidence, uh, I'll tell you that the man speaking before you today is evidence that... Uh, God uses historical facts to stir hearts. And that's what he did for me. He stirred my heart to bow my knee to Jesus as Lord. Um, I'll tell you my story. I, I couldn't, it's interesting. I can't really tell you when I became a Christian. And it's not because I feel like I've just always been one. Um, that's definitely not the case. But it seems like a lot of people in the evangelical spectrum can sort of put a, a date on the calendar and say, this is when I became a Christian. Or maybe there's a particular memory that they have that say, this is when I became a believer. And I can certainly tell you that I have distinct memories. Um, I'm just not sure that any of them were, were anything really more than uh, just sort of a treadmill to keep me going in the Christian world. Um, I, asked, I asked Jesus into my heart at Camp Orchard Hill in Pennsylvania twice. Um, I went to an altar call at Harvey Cedars Camp once. That's in New Jersey. Um, At my own churches growing up, I prayed a sinner's prayer a handful of times. Um, I went to a Carmen concert. Raise your hand if you remember who Carmen is. 
It's, it's a 90s musician. You're not missing out if you've never heard of him. Um, but I went to a big concert for Carmen. I got a dog tag necklace in the 90s from a Carmen concert to commemorate the fact that I went down to an altar call at a Carmen concert. <clears throat> so I can't tell you um, when I became a Christian, but I do remember when Christian beliefs became real convictions for me. So to backtrack, I'll tell you, I, I, lived in a, I grew up in a Christian home in Hershey, Pennsylvania. We, we sampled the buffet of churches. We went to five different denominations over the course of my, my childhood. Um, we sort of camped out a little bit in, in middle school and high school, so I had really solid youth pastors and youth groups at that point. I'm still friends with one of my, uh, the youth pastors that I had. And I was just generally a, a straight-edge kid. Um, didn't get in a, a lot of trouble, and, and uh, it was easy for the youth pastors to keep me around in youth group. <clears throat> but when I shipped off to Penn State for college, um, I realized I had an opportunity to reinvent myself or to try something new. And I dove into the party scene at this you know, 60,000 student Big Ten University pretty hard and pretty fast. Um, it, was, it was a whole new world to me, and I remember I would, I would lay in bed staring up at the spinning ceiling, and I'd say, God, I'm sorry for all the bad choices I made today. Probably going to make them again tomorrow, so I'm sorry about that too. And, and just move on, you know, um, where I was able to just kind of push these emotions, uh, these emotional ties to this faith of my youth. Um, I was able to push them down and, and do what I wanted to do. This life continued uh, when I graduated. I moved to New York City looking for a job in advertising, landing in a restaurant in Times Square. Um, and so I was you know, in New York with new friends, with new experiences, but I had this one tie back home, which was a sort of longtime girlfriend. And then we broke up. <gasps> and it was terrible. You know, as a 23-year-old guy who's kind of struggling in New York, it, it hit me pretty hard. And so at the time, I thought, all right, wait a minute. What am I doing? Like, let's, let's take stock of the choices I'm making, of the things that seem important to me, and let's sort of assess whether this is what I should be doing. So I actually called up my brother-in-law, who had been through a bad breakup with my sister, and then they got back together and got married. But I called him and I said, when, when you and Kate broke up, what did you do? What, what was your solace? What did you, you know, how did you cope? And he said, I read the Bible. I was like, all right, I kind of remember how to do that. I think I've got a Bible here on the shelf somewhere. So I started reading the Bible. Um, Easter came around, and I, I decided to go and find a church and uh, started going to a church. In fact, that first Easter Sunday at this church, um, they had copies of Lee Strobel's Case for Faith that they would give out to any newcomers at the church. So it wasn't just new believers, but it was anybody who was new through the doors. Um, I thought it was brilliant, and, and I grabbed a copy. Um, I remember riding on the New York City subway system with the cover bent back so people couldn't see I was reading this Jesus book, right? But, but I was reading it. Um, and for those who don't know, Case for Faith and the, and the Case for blank books by Lee Strobel, he was the legal editor for the Chicago Tribune. His wife became a Christian. He said, this is nonsense. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prove it to you, my dear. And so uh, he went around with his uh, journalistic background and interviewed all these uh, scholars in their particular fields of Christianity and New Testament um, scholarship and whatnot with the expectation that he was going to debunk them and poke holes in their theories. But it worked in opposite, and he became a Christian. And so he wrote these books as a result. And uh, so I, I read this book, and for the first time in my life, a, a switch flipped where I thought, 
holy cow, the, the Christian faith is not just this nice thing I was brought up in. There's actually evidence and facts to back this stuff up. And so it started to change me. And then um, God knew it was changing me because then he providentially put me into a small group that was reading uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, which if you've read that, that's a powerhouse apologetics book. There's a lot of old English in there because, you know, uh, he was an Oxford Don from the 1940s uh, writing to a British audience. But there, were, there was enough in there that I understood. And so the sort of one-two punch of these books really did it for me. And, and uh, it started to plant roots in my mind and in my heart for the evidence of, of these things that I believed in a sort of um, surface-level way my entire life. So I actually told a good friend who had known me from the restaurant, she knew me when I was partying in New York, she knew me when I was going through this transition, and she knew me as I came out of it, and I said, um, I, said I think my, my life needs to match the Bible, I think I need to stop doing the things I used to do. And she respected me, and I, I asked, uh, I invited her to come to um, the Jersey Shore for a beach baptism, and she came. And I think she saw something genuine in, um, in the, in the honest assessment of my life that I was going through. Um, so I got baptized and, and what I sort of took away from it was the thought of why did I, why was it then that I changed my life? Why didn't I just keep up with the beliefs of my childhood when I went off to college? And it's sort of what I said earlier that with emotions you can suppress them, you can kind of put them on the shelf for, for a day to enjoy the things that you think that you want to do. But with the facts staring you in the face, you just can't ignore them. Um, at least I couldn't. Uh, I think it, turning a blind eye to those things would have been like trying to live as though gravity didn't exist. Like eventually it's, it's, gonna, it's gonna get me. So I was still a 25 year old living in New York City on a shoestring budget, working a job that wasn't in my major, feeling, feeling lonely after a breakup. But the difference now is that I had a lens through which to see these things that I had gone through and to see the world around me and to see the, 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 the purpose uh, and, the, and the sort of things that I should be um, looking to achieve for the rest of my life. And that lens helped me to see everything more clearly and to make sense of the world. And that's because Christianity is the best explanation for the way things are. That's a quote from Greg Kokel, and I'll, I'll say it again a couple of times. Um, Greg Kogel is a um, Southern California guy. He's an apologetics guy from a ministry called The Stand of Reason. But he's pointing out by saying that, he's saying that if people are willing to suspend any disbelief they have and walk through certain mental exercises, they will see that the Christian narrative makes so much sense of the way that the world is, if Christianity is true. But it's also the case that believers who already believe, like we do, we can work backwards from the convictions that we already possess, and we can discover the supports that undergird those beliefs that we hold. Beliefs like God exists, the Bible is real and trustworthy, or Jesus truly rose from the dead. Years ago, a not bald Trevor O'Keefe taught a Sunday at Maranatha, and my wife and I instantly sent the sermon to several agnostics that we knew because we just we thought it was a, a dynamite sermon. He used an acronym, a mnemonic, FACES, F-A-C-E-S, for reasons to remember why the Bible is trustworthy. <clears throat> I'm just gonna give you a very sort of brief outline of it here. You can, you can, I think you can still find the sermon online um, and you can see what Trevor looked like when he had his quaff. Um, I love you, man. So uh, FACES stands for Fulfilled Prophecy, Archaeology, 
cohesive and coherent, external sources, and scientific foresight. So let's go through those one by one. Fulfilled prophecy, we have, um, I think most of us are aware of uh, the suffering servant um, narrative that we get in, in Isaiah, Isaiah 52 and 53. The suffering servant is what it's called, but um, there's two chapters that, excuse me. <clears throat> there's two chapters that seem very clearly to describe Jesus during the, the moments leading up to and during and after uh, his um, crucifixion. Here are some of the points that you'll find in Isaiah 52 and 53. It describes the suffering servant as he was so marred that he didn't even look human. He was lifted up in a way that nobody could believe. He didn't look like a king so as to be worshipped. He was despised and rejected and people hid their face from him. And we considered him insignificant and stricken by God. He experienced pain and grief, carrying our pain and illness. He endured the punishment that made us well. By his wounds, we are healed. He didn't open his mouth as he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He, <clears throat> he was led off to an unjust trial. He was cut off from the land of the living because of the rebellion of his own people. But later, he would see his progeny and his days would be prolonged. And they intended to bury him with criminals, but he was buried in a rich man's tomb. See, these things were written by Isaiah 900 years, I think, before Jesus. It was written before even crucifixion was invented. Um, and it's this perfect picture of who Jesus, of, of what Jesus endured for us. And um, we'll, we'll get to in a minute that you can trust that these things were actually written this way by the authors. Then you also have uh, in Mark 13, just as a, a, another one, uh, Jesus prophesies about Rome's destruction of Jerusalem, which we know happened historically. There's you know, lots of evidence that in 70 AD, um, uh, Jerusalem was destroyed by Rome. So sort of leaving that and, and heading into archeology, span the A in faces, archeology span regularly supports and despite some stretched claims, has never disproven scripture. In terms of scripture itself, you hear that the Bible, maybe it came to us uh, as a version of telephone, like the author wrote it down, and then another guy took that, and he wrote down his version, another guy took that, and he wrote down his version, and so people doubt that what we have today is what the original authors intended it to say. Au contraire, mon frere. Um, I'll just give you some, some of the points that you can take away here. Um, there is a fragment of the Gospel of John, it's only a few inches by a few inches, but it has seven lines from the Gospel of John that matches what your Gospel of John says in your Bible today, except it's in Greek. Um, but it's dating from as early as 125 AD. That papyrus and that ink is from 125 AD. That's less than 100 years from the ministry of Jesus. To quote PhD in, in history, Gary Habermas, um, who incidentally Trevor uh, got a chance to interview at Maranatha, and you can find that interview um, in the Maranatha TV app. I'd recommend watching it, it's great. Um, Gary Habermas said, there are just under 6,000 6, New Testament manuscripts with copies of most of the New Testament dating from just, a, just 100 years or so after its writing. 
So as a point of comparison, Homer's Iliad is a distant second, with a mere 643 manuscript copies, and the oldest copy dating from uh, about 500 years after the original. So let's compare those. 6,000 manuscripts of the New Testament with copies that date from within 100 years of their original writings, 6,000, versus 643 from 500 years after in the case of the Iliad. And that's the, that's the second place contender. And so it seems to me the game of telephone uh, is sort of destroyed. That theory is sort of destroyed when you think about the fact that there are 6,000 ancient manuscripts that all say the same things as one another. So every writer throughout the ages who has copied down the Bible and handed it off has been accurate in their copying so that we can have confidence and faith that the thing we're holding in our hands is what the authors intended it to say. The C in faces is the word consistent, uh, consistent, consistent and cohesive. Uh, my dear friend Jacob Gantos, who's sitting here with us today, you, some of you may know him as the director of the Maranatha Bible College, or you just might know him as a friendly face that waves at pretty much everybody uh, that he sees. Um, uh, Jacob loves Keith and Kristen Getty, and he turned me on to their music. Um, they write uh, hymns, sort of modern day hymns, and they have a song called The Perfect Wisdom of Our God. And it has this lyric. <clears throat> so, and teach me humbly to receive the sun and rain of your sovereignty. Each strand of sorrow has a place within this tapestry of grace. Tapestry of grace, I think, is a wonderful way of describing the Bible that we have uh, in our hands today. It's a rich tapestry of consistency. It's a carefully woven narrative that ties together in so many beautiful, nuanced ways. And my father-in-law has been reading his Bible daily for about seven years, um, reading it through, uh, you know, from January to December, reading it through every day. Uh, and, and he uh, has said on several occasions that the more you read the Bible, the more you see uh, all the strings kind of tying together, that things from Old Testament books tie into New Testament books and vice versa. It's this beautiful tapestry that God has given us of consistency. The E is in faces is external sources. Um, I think skeptics hold an unfair bias against Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They say, well, they believed the stuff they were writing, therefore we can't, you know, we can't trust it. Sports writers believe what they're writing, and, you know, and we, we trust that uh, every morning in the paper. But I think it is helpful to know that there are also trusted secular historians uh, who testify to the beliefs of the early church. I'll just give you four from the late first and early second century. Trevor, I think, has mentioned Pliny the Younger, uh, a good beer, but an even better historian. Um, Tacitus, Suetonius, and perhaps the most famous Josephus, uh, born just five years after Jesus' ascension. Um, these are all recognized scholars in their fields um, who are uh, used by secular sources to confirm historical events. And these guys all talked about the early church and their belief in the resurrection of Jesus. And I think a great external source that we kind of overlook is, is most of Western culture today. <clears throat> it has all the fingerprints of historic Christianity on it. Think about um, how many states still have liquor stores closed on Sundays. Um, think about the fact that monogamy is, at least for now, you know, the, the ruling and reigning version of marriage in Western culture. Um, uh, people asking for or offering prayer in times of trouble. These are, these are things you see in our culture today that are founded on Judeo-Christian principles, and those Judeo-Christian principles come from Scripture. Uh, we have scientific foresight, that's the S in faces. 
Um, throughout scripture, there are um, scientific accounts given that scientists at the time or people at the time did not have um, any um, knowledge to know other than from you know, divine inspiration. We know based on the, law, the second law of thermodynamics, we know that the universe is expanding. But we also knew that if we just read Job 9, verse 8, Psalm 104, verse 2, Isaiah 40, verse 22, all of which describe God stretching out the heavens. We know that the earth is just a floating orb. We've all seen beautiful pictures that NASA has taken from space. Well, Job 26, verse 77 says, he spreads the northern skies over empty space. He suspends the earth on nothing. We know that life is in the blood. We know that without, without blood in our bodies, we're not going to live very long. Um, without blood, we die. But we already knew that from Leviticus 17 and Genesis chapter 9. <clears throat> so in summary, um, faces, fulfilled prophecy, archaeology, consistency, external sources, and scientific foresight. These are just some of the reasons that we can believe that the Bible is trustworthy. Trevor also mentioned a few weeks ago that you'll notice um, in the gospel accounts, which are, you know, um, biographies, you get these little superfluous details that don't add to the story. Um, like last week, it was in, in Mark, uh, or two weeks ago, before the calming of the storm, there were extra boats in the water, and then the author never returns to that. And those are earmarks of um, eyewitness testimony. You also get things like embarrassing facts. Um, these are claims that you wouldn't add if you were trying to embellish a story or make up a story because they, they actually detract from the believability of that story. And the only reason that you'd include them is if they actually happened. Um, I think such is the admission that uh, women were the first people to find Jesus' tomb empty that Easter morning. Um, in the first century in Judea, uh, women's testimony was not considered trustworthy. Um, and so to include the fact that women were the first ones to find the tomb would either be um, uh, useless or it would be truth. So <clears throat> I don't think that our trouble is that we necessarily distrust the Bible. Um, I also don't think that there's necessarily trouble in having doubts. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. I think we all, we all do have doubts from time to time, maybe some more frequently than others. Um, I think it's, it's natural. Um, I think that we should let people know about it. We shouldn't let them scare us. We shouldn't let our doubts um, rule us. I also don't think we should let our doubts um, kind of fester. We need to be open and, and exposed and vulnerable. High probability is that other people have those same doubts, or maybe they have had those doubts and they've worked through them and they can help you too. So I would just encourage that if, if and when, not if, when we experience doubts, we should talk about them and, and we should wrestle through them. And if we believe in, in a God who gives answers, he's going to help us with those doubts. So I don't think that our trouble is lacking. A, uh, um, I don't think that our trouble is having doubts. I don't think that our trouble is lacking belief. But I do think it's lacking a defense when those doubts and challenges come. We believe that we believe the Bible, but when we doubt, which again we do, these defenses can help us back up our beliefs. And we know that God wants us to have evidence. Uh, according to John chapter twenty verse thirty-one, the Holy Spirit inspired John to write his gospel so that quote we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And then in Acts 1, it describes that after his suffering, Jesus presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. So there's no blind faith there. 
The approach we've taken so far is similar to The Case for Faith, um, uh, the book I mentioned before. It's, it starts with a held belief, and then it asks the person who believes it to defend that position, and, uh, and we can defend it. Mere Christianity, on the other hand, was a little bit different. It, it was an example of some really great deductive reasoning. Um, you start with things that are obvious to all people, facts that are clear, and then you proceed from there. For example, um, Starbucks executives in the 90s, they knew that coffee tasted good. They also knew that cold drinks are nice on a hot summer day. Therefore, it wasn't a stretch to conclude that Americans would probably buy a new icy drink called a Frappuccino. If we agree that A and B are true, and then we hold A and B together, we can actually infer that C is the most likely uh, outcome or, or conclusion. We're sort of getting into some $10 buzzword uh, territory, philosophy, epistemology, ontology, metaphysics, and then um, maybe $2 buzzwords like logic. Um, but this deductive um, uh, reasoning approach has a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of great arguments. I'll just give you a handful of them here. The cosmological argument is um, basically the argument that God created everything. And it goes a little something like this. Everything that began to exist has a cause. That's not controversial. If you ask anybody, you know, did, um, did this phone just exist? They say, no, it, it had a beginning, it had a cause. Somebody made the phone. If you see a child, there's a good chance that two people enjoyed themselves making that child. If you see a mailbox, somebody made that mailbox, right? Everything that began to exist has a cause. Again, going back to the second law of thermodynamics, the universe began to exist. It's, ex it's, it's expanding because it started at a finite point. The universe began to exist, therefore, the universe has a cause. That's all it is. There's not a whole lot more to it, except that the universe, because it began to ex exist, it has to have a cause. So we, at the very least, know that there is a causation. Um, as Pastor Miles McPherson at The Rock says, he says, if there's a big bang, there's got to be a bang big banger who banged the bang. So who's the bang to bang the banger? So we have to have a beginning, somebody outside of time and space who created time and space. Now we can continue forward and learn a little bit about this creator. Uh, the teleological argument, or the argument from design, uh, we'll see it, or we saw it a few weeks ago when Trevor um, took us through Jesus' kingdom parable of the mustard seed. The mustard seed is this little teeny tiny thing, but inside that is a factory. It's got all the plans and the tools necessary to transfer sunlight and water and nutrients and convert them into stock and head and leaves and grain. Little tiny factory, so intricate and so well designed for its purpose, right? Um, a famous uh, version of the teleological argument is it's called the watchmaker. And it basically it says that if you see a watch, you can't possibly mistake it as something that just happened by accident. There's purpose and intelligence obviously there in its design. William Paley uh, wrote a book in 1802 called Natural Theology. William Paley is the father of paleontology. Just kidding, it's not. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't know, I, don't know, I don't know what, you know. Um, but pa William Paley wrote um, in, his, uh, in his 1802 uh, British speak, he said, in crossing a field, suppose I pitched my foot against a stone and were asked how the stone came to be there. I might possibly answer that for anything I knew to the contrary, it had lain there forever. And, lose my place here, it lain there forever. And this wouldn't be an absurd notion. But suppose I had found a watch upon the ground, and it should be inquired how the watch happened to be in that place. 
I should hardly think to give the same answer I'd given before, that for anything I knew the watch might have always been there. There must have existed at some time and at some place or other a maker who formed the watch for the purpose which we find it actually has, who comprehended its construction and its designed use. Every manifestation of design, he said, which existed in the watch also exists in the works of nature around us, with a difference on the side of nature of being greater and more, and that in a degree which exceeds all computation. So very simply put, the universe, the world around us is much more intricate than a watch. And if we look at the watch and we say somebody had to make that, then it stands to reason that somebody made all of this too. So there's a, there's a, there's a beginning that has a cause and that cause has to have intelligence. It has to be a designer of sorts. And now the sort of coup de grace, uh, I think, of, uh, of, of this version of reasoning is the moral argument for God. There are obvious bad things, death, destruction. There are, there are less obvious things, possibly cultural, might, some might say, um, uh, but all of which trade on the, the idea of should versus should not, things we should do, things we, that we shouldn't do. So we'll come back to that, but for now, the obvious. In 2020, we saw hundreds of thousands of our fellow humans die or suffer alone in hospitals. We saw sad, tragic, unnecessary deaths and, and then we experienced a collective sorrow, but a confusion about how we were supposed to appropriately react to these deaths. We saw jobs lost and businesses shuttered. We saw loneliness and depression skyrocket. Our kids did a full year of growing up in front of computer screens. We saw rifts and hate that already existed in our country grow stronger and deeper. Personally, my, my wife's five cousins lost their dad, my, father, my father-in-law's youngest brother, he was in an accident at home, and some of, some of his sons were not able to go and see him at the hospital while his body um, uh, slowly gave up until he ultimately died. So when, when Uncle Paul died last year, I decided to start writing. Um, it, it, it didn't feel like I could necessarily do much, but I, I have a blog that I keep on medium.com, medium um, and I noticed that people around us in the world, they had questions about the suffering that we were experiencing. Uh, as, as a planet. And either they weren't asking these questions, or they weren't asking them the right way, or they weren't asking them in the right places. So I hope that maybe if I was able to write and give them God's answer to these problems, if it just reached one person, maybe it would help. So I wrote a three-part essay called, Are You There, God? It's Us, Humanity. So first I tackled, <clears throat> what exactly is evil and suffering and bad and wrong? Um, I think it's often said that the problem of evil, that's how it's put, is the most common argument against the Judeo-Christian worldview. And it's not common in a, in a common, common sense, because every time that somebody brings it up, it's unique and it's heartbreaking. They say things like, if God was all-loving and all-knowing and all-powerful, why did he let my child die of cancer? If God is all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful, why did he allow slavery to go on throughout the centuries in the entire world and then really culminate in a terrible way in the United States? Why did he cause or allow COVID-19? Right out of the gate, humans have a shared experience or a conclusion that at the very least, there is some aspect of nature or reality that is off. Things are not the way we think they should be in a certain sense. Um, C.S. Lewis, uh, I'll quote him again. Um, I mentioned he, he wrote Mere Christianity. He also wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, if, if you've heard of him from that. 
Um, he was not always a believer in Christ, but he wrote this quote here um, to describe his early thoughts that eventually led to his, his conversion. C.S. Lewis said, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of what a straight line looks like. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? A thing cannot be bad unless we have a standard of good, something to which we compare it and say, that's not right. That's not the way that things should be. We also can't have moral laws, the, the principle that we ought to do some things and that we ought not to do other things. We can't have those laws without a moral law giver. We have a crosswalk as we come across from the parking lot every day. That crosswalk was put there by, by a governing body who decided that that was the right thing. In God, we have both of these things. We have our straight line, we have our standard of good, and we have the, the moral law giver of the universe. In other words, as Trevor explained a few weeks ago, sin is sinful not because it's forbidden, it's forbidden and sinful because it's destructive. Something is sinful when it goes against God's nature. Something is crooked when it's not God's straight line. So sin and evil and suffering, are, are, they're not evidence against God. They are evidence of God in a fallen world full of fallen people. And yes, sinful actions of fallen people need to be addressed. But, but even without them, without fallen people, we still have a fallen world, uh, broken uh, broken setting for the narrative of our lives. And so the first thing that I, uh, in my writing, I, or excuse me, the next thing that I addressed in my writing was this idea of, of natural evil. Uncle Paul's accident was natural evil. Uh, he, he fell in his home, he, he severed a vertebrae so that he couldn't get up for help, and he laid on his arm for three days. Uh, when he got to the hospital, the infection in his arm eventually took his life. Natural disasters. We see them written up in legal contracts, and they're called acts of God. Natural suffering happens all around us without anybody having to commit some, some sin or some evil. I'll give you an example. A tree falling is not bad. A tree falling in a puddle filled with plankton is not bad. A tree falling on a fly is not bad. A tree falling on a rat, it depends how you feel about rats, a tree falling on your favorite dog, that's tragic. A tree falling on your great aunt Mildred is horrible, no matter how much you hated her knitted Christmas sweaters every year. Nobody questions God about a tree falling in a puddle or wags a finger at a tree crushing a weed. We only start assigning blame when tragedy strikes. So it's the loss of invaluable life that we mourn. It's not the natural act of the tree falling or the tornado spinning or things like that. Meaning that whether or not we want to blame God for these natural things, we need to at first, at least, acknowledge the inherent sanctity that God placed in every human life. And therefore, we need to make sure that any beef or any grudge that we hold with God, we first have to take stock of that very important point in God's favor that he placed that value in each of us. So then I was able to move on in this essay into addressing evil perpetrated by humans. Um, a couple weeks ago, Trevor walked us through the exercise of considering what it might be like uh, if God were to violate free will on a regular basis. Um, I did that too in, in my writing. Um, 
in part two, I offered a hypothetical fictional situation. I said, man A is a guy with a chip on his shoulder. Man B is an innocent man, wrong place, wrong time. Man A shoots man B in a misunderstanding clouded by sinful attitudes. And man A kills man B. What should God have done? God could have stopped the bullet. He could have paralyzed man A's trigger finger. He could have done any number of things to prevent man A from acting in free will. He could have even caused man B to alter course so that he wasn't in the wrong place, wrong time that day. Sure, he could have done that. He's, he's God. I think we even have singular examples of scripture in scripture where God has done that and violated free will to achieve particular ends in a particular situation. But would we be satisfied with God constantly overriding the free will of bad guys frequently around the world? If he interviewed in this instance to save man B from man A, why didn't he intervene to stop every other death that's happened throughout history? Should God fiddle with the mechanics of each person's mind, body, and soul so that they can't make a damaging choice to hurt themselves or others? It seems if that were the case, then we would no longer call free will, free will. We wouldn't be, if we were never able to choose wrong, then we wouldn't really be choosing right. We would just be walking the path that's the only path that's still available to us. So this sounds alarmingly like compliant robots, not the autonomous creatures made in the image of God that we read about in Genesis. So we're left with a God who allowed the evil perpetrated in this case by man A. And we're left with God allowing or perhaps even causing by his sovereignty over the wind, the tree to fall on great Aunt Mildred, rest her soul. She made the worst mushroom casserole. But we're also left we're also left with the immense value that God set in each individual human being. And we're left with the knowledge that God must be perfectly good, our straight line, if we were to even think of, for a moment, calling anything slightly crooked. Trevor quoted Tim Keller a few weeks ago, and I, I think it's an important reminder here. <clears throat> he said, if you have a God great and transcendent enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, then you have, at the very same moment, a God great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it to continue that you may not know about or that you can't know. Um, in my essay, I drew a comparison to teaching my kids to ride their bikes. There was a lot of falling and a lot of pain, but it was for a greater good. Um, I now don't think that that's necessarily the best analogy because the kids also knew about that greater good. So let's go with a sadder example. Um, my son, Max, who's seven now, uh, when he was a toddler, he got salmonella. Um, he, we had to do several blood draws in order to continue assessing his health. And uh, I, I know that he could not fathom or understand why his mom and dad were pinning him down while a doctor was coming, a stranger was coming, and putting a needle into his arm and pulling blood out for you know um, what probably felt like um, eternity. But as his parents, we had good reason for this choice. I think we are to God what our toddlers were to us, or are to us, um, too young to understand the grown-ups' decisions. And if we are perpetually to God what a toddler is to his father, then we are perpetually unable to understand God's ways. The Bible says his ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts. Um, when Trevor quoted Keller, he also tagged on this very important bit. God didn't give us every explanation. He gave us himself. 
So the so-called problem of evil isn't quite the problem as originally presented. It's not a problem that we have about God for which we must find an explanation or a solution on our own. It's actually a problem that God also acknowledges as being a problem and to which he gives the solution. So that's kind of where we'll start landing the plane here. I've always wanted to use the term landing a plane in front of a, an audience that I'm speaking to. <laughs> Seems like it's like a pastor thing. Um, you say it and then you keep going for 20 minutes. I'm, I'm going to try not to do that. Um, sadly, we ourselves are often the perpetrators of evil against others, small and large. So to do our philosophical work here, we can agree that when we do bad, we often feel a kick in our conscience. Therefore, it's not hard to see that our conscience, that that guilty feeling was put there and has a purpose. Our own convictions and, and remorse are perhaps the most convincing internal signposts that we have for the existence of a good God. Um, there's, a, there's an evangelist, I think I would call him an evangelist, a street evangelist maybe, named Ray Comfort. Um, he's been around for decades. He's done radio shows with Todd Friel. He used to have um, a program called Way of the Master with um, a kid from Growing Pains, Kirk Cameron, yeah. And so Ray Comfort, uh, he's got a, a great YouTube channel now. He's this, this short little um, New Zealand guy with a thick mustache and a very interesting way about him uh, when he speaks. But he boldly uh, and, and you know, very um, in a friendly way walks up to people on the streets in, um, I think it's Santa Monica uh, Beach and, and the Venice Boardwalk. And he asks them if it's okay. If he asks them some questions, does an interview with them with a camera and they concede. And he says to him, do you consider yourself a good person? So, yeah, I think I'm a pretty good person. Well, have you ever told a lie? Yeah, I've told lies. What do you call someone that tells lies? A liar. Ooh. You, ever, you ever stolen anything? Even something small, like a candy bar when you were a kid? Yeah, I think I've taken things that don't belong to me. What do you call someone that steals things? A stealer? No, that's a football team. What do you call someone that steals things? Uh, a thief. All right. And he says, you know, um, he continues on. He says, have you, uh, have you ever looked at a woman with lust? The guy says, yeah, and he says, Jesus says that's to commit adultery in your heart. It's very serious. And he asks, uh, have you ever used the Lord's name in vain? And they say, yes, and he says, that's blasphemy. That's also very serious. So he says, well, I'm not judging you, but by your own admission, you're a lying thief and a blasphemer and an adulterer at heart. <laughs> he says, if you were standing before God on judgment day, would you be considered innocent or guilty? And the person begrudgingly says, guilty. Would you go to heaven or hell? Hell, I guess. Does that concern you? <laughs> now that you mention it, it does. <laughs> and then he, he, he brings it home. He continues in the, um, in the courtroom demonstration. He says, you're standing before God on judgment day. He reads off this rap sheet. You're standing condemned, judged to hell. And then a man walks into the courtroom and says, I will pay your fine. I will take your penalty. Do you want me to do that? He says, that's what God did for us in the person of Jesus. Jesus is willing to take our penalty and we can walk free and a rap sheet can be dismissed. And, and he says, well, you think about this. Do you have a Bible at home? And he said, yeah. Do you want to pray to ask for, for forgiveness today? Um, and it's just, it's, it's beautiful, these authentic conversations dealing with the guilt that each one of us has and carries inside us. And he demonstrates that Jesus is... Uh, the, the propitiation. Jesus is the covering. He's the antidote to our problem. He's the salve for the burning acknowledgement of sin 
and guilt that we all carry in, inside us. That's why Paul said that our faith is in vain if Jesus did not rise from the dead. Now, if we had more time, I would continue on the journey of exploring how Christianity best explains the, the, the way things are um, by taking stock of a, a handful of, a, uh, of events that took place 2,000 years ago and the ripples that, have, that they've caused right up through today. Um, but suffice to say, we have excellent reasons for our convictions that Christ truly died on the cross and truly rose from the dead that day. We're very fortunate that God not only calls us to love him with our minds, but also gives us the capacity to do so and good reasons to do so. Christianity is intellectually fulfilling. The Judeo-Christian worldview is the best explanation for the way things are. And you can have confidence in your faith even while you're wrestling with doubts. Because ours is not a blind faith. God has given us the evidence that he has given, him, given us himself. Amen? Amen. Um, thank you guys very much. I'm going to have the worship team come up and I'm going to pray for us here. <sighs> Father God, we thank you very much that you love us enough to give us yourself. That you acknowledge that we are finite human beings in this life and, and therefore um, our ways are not going to be um, on par with yours. And so you've taken care to give us evidence that you love us and you've called us to love us in a way that we are capable of doing if we are committed to um, discovering our convictions and the reasons that we have for them. We're committed to your word and we're committed to prayer. Thank you for this time together, this beautiful day. Um, thank you for this wonderful church uh, of which I get to be a part. Um, pray that you will bless everybody here, bless their day, bless the week ahead. And uh, we look forward to spending time in air conditioning next week. Uh, pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.